It was in May 2019 that Chris Stokel Walker's book, YouTubers, How YouTube Shook Up TV and Created a New Generation of Stars, came out. It's widely acclaimed as not only a brilliant snapshot of the 15-year history of YouTube, but also an awesome understanding and reminder of the beginnings of that platform, but also how creativity, commerce and culture have all combined to make YouTube what it is. I'm James Erskine and I work for Rocket and I'm presenter of the Rocket Fuel podcast, where each week we try and talk to people that have affected or documented youth culture and youth marketing. And this week's guest not only wrote that book, but he's a freelance journalist and he's written for Wired, the BBC, The Telegraph, The Guardian, so many different places. To call him the journalist of a generation might be overplaying it, but to call him the journalist that's most successfully and consistently documenting digital culture and digital thinking is no overstatement at all. You see, Chris's work and some of his work during the last most recent weeks on topics as diverse as Zoom, on, on changing history with Dominic Cummings, have been incredible. And when we sat down, we were on Zoom, he's based in Newcastle, I'm in London, we discussed his book, we discussed the future of news, the future of journalism, and then we asked Chris Stokel Walker about his rocket fuel. So, first thing to say is Chris Stokel Walker, um, thank you so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. It's such a privilege to have you. Likewise, thank you for having me. Really excited to chat about all things digital and youth and video and all sorts. Yes, indeed. So, why don't we contextualise for the benefit of the listener? Because you've written, if you like, one of the great books about social media. You've written YouTubers, how YouTube shook up TV and created a new generation of stars. But that's not all you've done. You've written for Wired, The Times, The Guardian, all sorts of places. Talk to us about your journey, Chris. How have you got where you are now? So a uh, desperate search for money, James, is, is basically <laughs> the only reason. I mean, I, I did English literature at university, read a load of books because I had no idea what I wanted to do, and then graduated, got an office job writing reports at an oil and gas company for about six years, and then did a little bit of freelance journalism on the side. Um, so early 2012 was my first sort of stories, and I am... Um, you, know, you, you hear as a journalist that you should start at the bottom and work your way up. Well, I, I didn't quite do that. I pitched The Economist because my boss at the time said that you write like you should write for The Economist. So I emailed them not knowing that I should have paid my dues, um, <laughs> tested them 10 times with 10 different ideas. Eventually they said, yes, okay, just to make me shut up. And I've kind of gone on from there. So I cover tech features, um, but anything and everything, really, you know, I'm doing a lot of coronavirus stuff at the minute, you know, science-related things as well as technology, and then digital culture, because that kind of reflects my interests and, you know, what I do in my spare time. So we're, we're speaking in kind of week eight of lockdown right now. You've already mentioned, if you like, earning money. I just want to focus on you as a freelance journalist. How tough is it anyway, and how tough is it right now? I mean, freelance journalism is difficult in any circumstances. 
but it is made more difficult by the fact that the media industry seems to be dying and the permanent staff members that used to run these organizations are being furloughed or fired so you know we're talking in the week that buzzfeed laid off all of its uk news staff we're talking in the week that court laid off a load of its staff those are really skilled journalists who are going to be probably coming onto the freelance market and obviously the more competition there is the more difficult it is but even in ordinary times you know i teach um journalism students and we're getting towards the end of the year so they are asking kind of how do we do freelance stuff and i said to them well when i started i had maybe a 10 percent success rate on pitches for ideas it's up to about 50 percent at the minute dropping down to 40 or so because of coronavirus tightening budgets but it's really difficult you know you have to come up with lots of ideas you have to be dependable you have to work all hours of the day and you have to have good contact as well so you know you've got to be a jack of all trades and a master of none and do you theorize that there won't be anybody that gets as lucky i mean i know you're immensely skilled of course chris but but up and coming journalists now they won't get a piece commissioned by the economist no matter how hard they pester or do you do you still think that's possible no it's still possible it's, it's all about the ideas and whether or not you can write in full sentences you know that's what i do is not difficult you know i basically what i do is i find the experts in the field i talk to them i steal their ideas and i repackage them um, <laughs> and just explain it you know that is what journalism is it is picking up a subject matter at nine o'clock in the morning on one day finding three experts who you can talk to by midday writing up the story by two o'clock and translating it into a way that the general public understands by three that's you know people think that they're you know, journalists are these kind of well-read people but we're not we're really just you know winging it we're kind of spinning all these plates and hoping one doesn't drop so on your journalism the the reason why i love your work and i i because I'm a geek, I notice how it differs slightly depending on, on where you are and where you're, who you're writing for. And you're adopting the tone, if you like, of that title. But the other reason why I think the work that you produce is great is because it's that narrative, Chris. So you're, you're both a storyteller and a writer. And I kind of want to get into the difference between a journalist and a writer. Because some people can get the greatest stories, but they can't necessarily tell them, if you like. Yeah, well, there's an interesting thing. So again, when I teach my students, we teach them that there are different types of journalism. So if you think of it as a sliding scale, on one end you have news stories. So you know, a very strong top line of a news story is something that you'll see on the BBC website, which is you know, the number of deaths on due to coronavirus topped thirty-five thousand today. You know, that is a boring, sad news story. Um, which is written in a very matter-of-fact way. And then you have at the other end of the sliding scale features journalism, which is uh, generally less reactive. It's more in-depth or character-led. It kind of borrows elements from fiction writing um, and you know, is, is kind of building up that narrative. And I've always been, because I'm not based in London, I've never worked in an actual newsroom, I've always kind of tended towards the more feature sides. I do occasionally do news stories and do break news in around sort of particularly the online video world, but 
it, it's more features. You know, I'm more interested in the characters, in their motivations, in what they do, and in telling stories in, in scenes in a very sort of movie-like way. When you're working with people, when you're profiling people, what, what is it you look for? Is there a commonality in the stories that you write? I don't know, actually. I think you know, the way that I describe it is that I'm essentially being paid to learn every single day. You know, it, it's, you know, a lot of people go to university to pay to learn about things, but I am very inquisitive and a little bit nosy. I think every journalist has to be a bit nosy. And so basically what I'm doing is just kind of sidling up to people and seeing what makes them tick or you know, if it's a story about a thing, about a movement or about a development, then it's kind of figuring out what it is that makes it important. But you know, it's, you, you kind of pick up people's character traits and you have to learn to read them very well. So, you know, I did a story once where I followed around a, a guy who pretended to be uh, the Crown Prince of Montenegro, um, which is a, a job title that doesn't exist. So I had a couple of days following him around Italy as he kind of opened monasteries and pretended that he was a, a royal family member and everybody bought it. And you can kind of like learn from people's ticks whether it's a verbal tick or whether it's kind of like a a little movement that they do the small sort of characteristics of you know almost kind of like terribly psychoanalyzing them um and you know it's something that is pretty dangerous to do if you think that you're doing it properly but you learn a lot about people from how they interact with others so when you when you have the benefits of, if you like, a full-time job, you have, you know, HR procedures, you have, you have, you know, training courses that you go on. Is it a solitary existence being a freelance journalist? Who, you know, do you, who do you, who do you get to meet for your Christmas party? How, how lonely are you, Chris? I mean, I'm, I'm adapting better to lockdown <laughs> than I think anybody else because I spend most of my days anyway sat in my flat. Uh, writing and working so no it, it it is a solitary existence the way that you um build up a network is you find fellow journalists and you sort of interact with them and you use them as peer support networks i'm very lucky in that alongside doing the actual journalism you know in previous years i've had a full-time job while doing the journalism um but in the last sort of two or three years i've kind of balanced it with some part-time university teaching so you know i kind of have a um social group there but you, know, you also interact with people when you're doing your stories so yeah it's not as if I am sat at home not talking to anybody for weeks on end. My job is literally to ring up people every single day and talk to them. It just so happens that that becomes a written story at the end of it. Let's, let's focus on you for a second, Chris. Are you any good at switching off? No. Next. <laughs> no, I, you, you, can't be, you can't be a freelance journalist because... Um, and this is what I think people are beginning to learn now as they are kind of um, in lockdown is you don't have a, you, you can't be a journalist full stop because news breaks every single hour of every single day. So for instance, if Susan Wojcicki left YouTube uh, in the next 20 minutes, I would be hanging up this call and writing a story on it. Um, mm -hmm. And that's simply part of the job. But also it's compounded by the fact that you're a freelance journalist. So you are self-generating your own work. You have to build up your leads. So you really have to chase things down more and more. And you don't have an office often. You know, my office is my living room. 
And so it's very tempting to just pick up the laptop, regardless of what time it is, and, and type out a few more words, which is something that a lot of people don't like about this kind of job. But I, I don't treat it as work, is the thing. So I don't see a difference between what I'm doing as fun and a hobby and what I'm doing as work. I want to, just because you've kind of painted a really good picture of the, the landscape, I want to just ask a, a question on kind of the news, if you like, out there. I mean, there's there's lots of talk about, you know, the, the cliche is digital pennies for print pounds. Um, as you've already referenced, BuzzFeed look, looks like they're cancelling their news operations in the UK this week. And yet BuzzFeed has broken scoop after scoop after scoop. And there are some incredible journalists there. There's, there's Tortoise, which has been my, if you like, new favourite this lockdown. What, what does it take for a news or features website to work? What's gonna, what's, is there a secret formula or, or is everybody, you know, is it just not going to work that way? What, what's, it, what's it take? No, we're all screwed. I mean, journalism is dying. <clears throat> no, I mean, genuinely, like it's, if you can, um, if people can spare the money, buy a subscription to a newspaper, a news website or a magazine, because um, we already knew that the economics of journalism, because we've become so used to being able to consume content for free, we already knew the economics of journalism were in trouble what coronavirus has done as it has with so many different aspects of our world and our society is it has accelerated long-term trends sometimes up to the breaking point and that is what is happening with journalism now um you know journalism takes time and effort to produce and it takes money to fund that and more than ever given a lot of the issues that we're seeing and a lot of the kind of scandals that are coming out around the world around this stuff we need people holding power to account um and you know it's it's you might think that's really high and mighty coming from someone who writes about youtubers and tiktokers (laughs) all day but you know i'm talking about the people who are actually doing important journalism here um if we don't fund that we become a much poorer society in every single way so yeah it's not good times for journalism basically but uh you know i'm hopeful that maybe people will recognize the importance of the fourth estate and they will maybe dip into their pockets and help support it i will let's drill down let me make a sweeping statement so you don't have to the ads model doesn't work so the subscriber model has to is that is that a fair pricing and summary yeah but then also people you know the subscriber model has to be so expensive that people don't want to pay for it because they've had 10 15 20 years of i can type anything into google and i can get Mm. the guardian for free i can get the bbc for free you know there, there is always this difficulty where so many sites um have aggregated reporting that costs money for free that you will find a hooky version anywhere and then you have you know for instance the sunday times did an amazing uh, bit of reporting a few weeks back that um did actually drive subscriptions up but then owen jones tweeted it out for free as a screenshot because he fundamentally disagreed with the owner of the book the publication and it's a bit like well you know the snake is eating its own tail here 
<laughs> yes, I saw that. I think you and I most recently connected on Twitter where you said if, if all you can do uh, this lockdown is subscribe to a publication, I think you were talking wired. And I think I, retweet, uh, I was retweeting and I mentioned that I think I subscribed to the New York Times, the Times, the Guardian and Wired and Tortoise now as well and The Economist and I still don't feel like I'm doing enough. So, so yeah, I hear you. Um, Chris, I'm going to ask you now, maybe even speak about yourself in the third person, but let's not go too crazy. What do you think you're known for? Oh God. I mean, in terms of the actual finished product, um, it is tech journalism. You know, I, I, I explain the weird things in technology to normal audiences. Um, amongst a certain group of people I'm known for covering digital culture, which obviously means anything from Club Penguin to um, Instagram to TikTok to YouTube to the wider influencer and creator space. But hopefully to editors, I'm kind of known as being someone who's dependable, who can string together sentences, which is apparently um, sometimes a rare quality in journalism, I think. So I'm still here with Chris Stoker-Walker, the journalist, the writer. Our second section of the Rocket Fuel podcast is to kind of get under the skin of the person's industry, the person's work. Let's start perhaps, Chris, with, if you like, your your biggest thing. I mean, would you describe it as your biggest thing? The, the YouTubers, how YouTube shook up TV and created a new generation of stars. Is that your signature piece? Is that the thing that you're most proud of? Yeah, definitely. So far. I mean, I'm hoping that there'll be more, but um, it was a lot of work. You know, several years of hard labor, uh, trekking up and down the country and around the world. So yeah, definitely. I've, th there's two things that, if you like, I, when I first read the book, that I was really not shocked by, but I just think it was a real point of difference. And that is the fact that you you can poke fun, you can prod, you can even, if you like, in a literary way, roll your eyes to a certain degree. But I suppose at the end of the day, you have a serious amount of respect for content creators on YouTube. It's serious, isn't it? Yeah, they're entrepreneurs. And this is the thing that people often mistake is people think of YouTube as all just content creators in general as celebrities. You know, they don't fully understand what this job is because it is still being formulated the rules and the societal norms around it are still kind of being put together and so what they do is they try and equate it to an old world analogy and the one that they often reach for is kind of like a z-list celeb like a, a mark wright from towie or something like that when actually that's misplaced because they just see the front of camera stuff they see someone looking pretty posting videos and photos on social media and they think that's it what they should be doing if they're going to draw an analogy is they should be drawing an analogy with entrepreneurs or business owners because these people are creating startups you know they are running businesses they're doing books they are uh, managing their accounts they are doing merchandise they are brokering brand deals they are kind of developing their own personal brand in a way that people don't acknowledge and that takes a lot of work and, and you know this is the the one thing that i think has allowed me to get access to this world quite as much as i have is that a lot of the people covering this space even still approach it with you know holding their nose and kind of turning away 
when actually you have to admire the amount of effort that goes into it and the fact that these people are changing the world you know there's a reason why the book was subtitled what it was they are changing society so i want to ask two questions on that what age do you think we're in in terms of influencer marketing i suppose there was a there was a period i guess maybe 10 i I think we ran our first influence marketing campaign nine years ago so a a youtube one you know after bloggers and and i'm doing air quotes for the benefit of the listener and then it was kind of wild west do you think we're in an area in an age now where it's more professional do you think there are still bandits out there what do you think is happening what's your helicopter view oh i mean there are still bandits out there because there is still money to be made and you know, the potential spoils are so great that um, it is very easy to pull the wool over people's eyes as they start out. But you, know, you only need to look at the fact that you have some of the world's biggest YouTubers, some of the world's biggest TikTokers, some of the world's biggest Instagrammers being represented by the likes of William Morris Endeavor and other major talent agencies to see that this, at least in the kind of YouTube space and in the Instagram space, is a mature market. These people are celebrities. They're not sort of, you know, it, they've always been historically given a sort of prefix they've always been online celebrities or they've always been kind of digital celebrities whereas now they're actually just you know big massive brands in themselves so and the whole industry that supports them has built out around that and become really quite mature i mean you know you look at whether you're looking in the uk at like a gleam or you're looking in the us at sort of a rooster teeth or um or uh, the uh, Rhett and Lynx company, or you're looking towards India at T-Series, or, or South Korea at Pinkfong. Like, these companies are big conglomerates that hire you know, sometimes hundreds of staff to run these things. So this is a very mature market. Your respect is there for YouTube creators, and I get that. They're creating long-form content, they're mobilizing audiences, they're you know they're getting often bigger bigger engagement than tv shows out there i want to break it down for tiktok next because i know that's another area of interest for you and that's another thing that i think for some people has blown up during this kind of period of lockdown when you're making just 15 second videos or even shorter surely that that isn't an art form or would you disagree chris well i went to vidcon um this year just before it shut down so before the world shut down vidcon london (laughs) in february 2020 um so the site of the the nhs nightingale in london now the xl center (laughs) was a weird weird time that's how you can define pre-covid and post-covid um (laughs) and i saw uh, the nafati brothers who are two polish twins who are living i think blackpool or bradford um somewhere in no i think it's lancashire so it must be blackpool um and they no blackburn maybe and they um were filming a tiktok uh on the kind of concourse of the xl and you know it's a 15 second video so you think well you know how much effort goes into that and i was stood there with um a phd researcher who's doing her, her work on youtube and another youtuber called simon clark watching them film this video and it took them 10 minutes 
to film 15 seconds because they put so much detail into it. And part of it was was farcical because they were obviously doing an effect where they would run up, they would zoom up to the two brothers who would then start dancing along this corridor. So they sent the cameraman like literally 500 meters down the corridor and he had to walk up at a snail's pace because obviously when the shot got sped up, any sort of wobble on the camera would be accentuated. So, you know, even in just like a basic practical terms, a 15 second video can take a long time to record because I was stood there a long, long time. But you know, then you think about conceiving of the ideas of thinking how to connect with your community of you know, looking at and analyzing the trends on this platform and, and seeing which, which challenge you want to use, which hashtag you want to use, which song you want to use. It's, it's complicated. When you look at, TikTok, when you look at YouTube, when you look at indeed any social platform, the one thing that I know, having read your work, is you understand that alongside the creativity comes the commerce, right? People have got to eat, people have got to pay the bills. And you you very much understand the part that brands play in that creator-audience relationship. Big sweeping question. Do you think brands get it right, or do you think brands get it wrong, or do you think do you think it varies? I think it varies, but I think more often than not, they get it wrong. They're getting better at it. But you know, you only have to look at, um, for instance, the way in which online creators have been kind of co-opted by traditional TV broadcasters. Um, you know, why is Lad Baby doing a daytime TV show on the BBC? Like, it doesn't make sense. That, you know, those skills are very different. Why is Joe Sugg presenting... Um, you know, primetime TV shows. Uh, the, what tends to happen, I think, is that these creators get a fan base and more often than not, a brand kind of realises that they have an audience, but they don't understand why they have the audience. They don't understand that it's largely down to the personality. So they try and sort of squeeze that personality into the box that they've already built and they don't realize that it's massively constraining for them and it never kind of comes off as authentic which is you know the main commodity of these people their authenticity or at least you know i'll do air quotes this time authenticity <laughs> in in air quotes <laughs> with the, so one of the examples referenced in your book is the Heinz baked beans and Dodie um, and Dodie was just kind of pick, picking up at the time her fan base was just getting big there for the benefits of the listeners it's fascinating that because we back in the day were the agency that delivered that campaign for a PR agency so we were the influencer marketing people and there for the benefit of the listeners Dodie created a song using a, a tin of Heinz baked beans that was replicating the TV ad. And, and as you reference in the book, I think the, the, um, the, the title of the video was Beans Ad. It's an incredibly blatant placement for all of this about how you have to weave the brand into the fabric of the editorial. The rules are sort of changing when it comes to influencer marketing, aren't they? It's, there's, there's no kind of there's nothing obvious anymore or indeed everything should be overly obvious. I just want to get your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, well, I think the reason why I thought that worked so well <clears throat> as an ad, and, and you may you know have more insight into this in terms of the direction of it, was that it was still at its heart Dodie. It was, you know, she is kind of incredibly sweet, kind of quirky, a little bit awkward. And, and the, you know, the setup of it was exactly that. It was something that you would never see happen. She kind of, in her demeanor and in the way that she presented it, you know, acknowledged that weirdness, you know, that I'm playing a can of beans musically. <laughs> it, 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 it really fitted. Um, and that's, I think, something that you don't see a lot of. I think you see people getting put into preconceived ads without really engaging with the, the talent, with the creator. But, you, you know, I mean, how did you do that? Did you actually sit down with her and talk about it? No, we didn't sit down. It was a relatively small amount of budget it was kind of the i'll use the turn of phrase now it was the fat end of a budget for a bigger campaign uh we were originally going to work with a different creator i can't remember for the life of me who it was we found Dodie, and Dodie's slightly she's a bit of an exception because she's still managed independently she's one of the very few that isn't with if you like one of the big management businesses out there it's still her friend who acts as her manager Manage and i think off. it was yeah that's it yeah josh and i think we i think we sent an email one morning josh came back in the afternoon saying we could do something and it was live by the weekend it was the most and she said roughly what she was going to do and we never dreamed it would be that good and then we went on to work with her for um chuppa chups airheads where she did um a cover of i want candy which again the, the client loved and and now she's you know best-selling superstar she's amazing and and headline um sitsy doesn't she so so yeah how do you how do you measure the returns on those right fascinating so i was i was actually going to come on to ask you a similar question which is (laughs) do you think brands are getting value so i'll go first why not so it's amazing how different brands are measuring success okay so if i the other thing that we did as a business was we were the we were the reason why most YouTubers said get a free one month trial with Audible, um, and we were that agency that brought the Audible cost per acquisition stuff. I was working with a podcast business at the time, and we took that into the YouTube space and, and made quite a lot of money for lots of creators and quite a lot of money for us. And there it was really easy because it was all direct response. It was all cost per acquisition. When you get and the Dodie stuff particularly with the Heinz stuff was fascinating because we were working with, they wouldn't call themselves this, but essentially a PR agency. So there they're looking for different metrics. They're looking for brand metrics. And I suppose this is a long-winded way of saying everybody's measuring things in a slightly different way. And I'm always a big proponent to YouTubers, to content creators, TikTokers. They really should ask, where is this brief coming from? Which I know is a boring marketing question. You know, is it a comms brief? Is it a direct response brief? And also, how are you measuring success? Do you see what I mean? Because some people want to see a big engagement rate, which is kind of a vanity metric. Other people want to see how many units has it shifted. Yeah, and, and this is the interesting thing. I mean, when I did the book... When I started the book, there was still this kind of priority on subscribers. And over the course of reporting the book, the ad industry in particular, but also the creators as a result of the ad industry waking up to that, kind of realized that 
you know, subscribers was a dead metric because of the fact that so many people moved on. So then they've gone on to views. And the challenge that I had in the book was people don't understand views. The general public don't understand views as much as they do subscribers because you can, if you, you know, a view is not one person necessarily, mm. you know, but if you can say, well, you know, KSI has 20 million subscribers, you can imagine, you know, a football stadium and then you can multiply that up and you can go, wow, this guy is a big deal. Or you can, you know, draw the equivalent of the number of people tuning into a TV show. Um, but as you say, engagement rates are really interesting because they can be gained as can views, as can subscribers. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of the one that I think a lot of marketers struggle with, isn't it? Is, is what is a useful metric? And you know, even conversion doesn't necessarily work out because what if it's just brand loyalty that you're building rather than actual sales? Completely. Uh, we've had, um, in a, one of the very first rocket fuel interviews we did with the behavioral economist Rory Sutherland, and he points out that the most effective ad is the one that's above a bar that points and says, get a beer here. You know, you don't know whether that person was already going to get a pint of beer already. Do you see what I mean? So this direct response thing doesn't necessarily work. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, and the association isn't there with creators as well. So it's, you know, even if it's they're not going you know if um i don't know if if dodi advertises beans you know people may not buy the beans but they associate heinz with a particular type of person who buys that who is dodi and therefore that has kind of a halo effect on the whole product range i mean you know creators directly you know managers directly it's a different kind of fanaticism that they get from their audience than if you like traditional celebrities i'd I'd just i'd love you to to bring to life if you like your thoughts on the fandom and also chris maybe a horrible question but have you seen anybody break down have you seen content creators go nuts yeah loads um there's there's mentions of it in the book i mean so we're talking here i guess about parasocial relationships which is the technical term for um, what happens when you build up a feeling of friendship with someone who does not feel a feeling of friendship back to you? So the early equivalent of this, and it was the term parasocial relationship that was coined in the 1950s and 60s, was when you would invite soap stars or evening TV news anchors into your front room in a very intimate way to present you with the TV show that they were hosting every single evening. And, you know, that's kind of gone into hyperdrive um, in the age of social media. And so your parasocial relationships are interesting ones because they are the thing that um, fuels creators. You know, they are the thing that makes them different from Tom Cruise or from, I don't know, a Lindsay Lohan or someone like that. I was going to say my, my go-to one for that is always Jennifer Lawrence, but Jennifer Lawrence is kind of an interesting one because the presentation of her is such that she actually has a little bit of parasocial relationship mm. because she presents herself as so relatable and klutzy and kind of uh, normal um, that she kind of bridges those two things. But yeah, that, that has a big effect because what you're doing is you're engaging people in a way that is very personal and they feel an intense loyalty to you. Um, and so if you do anything to wrong them or if you do anything to kind of alter your um, 
your style of presentation or the things that you're interested in just because you're a human being who evolves then suddenly you risk alienating that audience and as much as they love you they can turn around and hate you and so you know when you ask about um people burning out and breaking down that is one of the main pressures there's obviously the pressure of having to create a lot of content in a short period of time constantly but there's also the kind of mental pressure of feeling accountable to and um beholden to your your audience to your fan base and worrying that people can be very fickle and if you don't do exactly what they want if you don't present the idealized version of whoever your audience has in their heads then suddenly all of this can go away tomorrow i want to ask you a question based on if you like more youth culture generally because you're you're clearly there's this respect thing always fascinates me. So you, you're respectful of the relationship. You're respectful of the work they do. Are there any parts of youth culture that leave you cold? Are there any parts where you really do roll your eyes and just think, nah, that that's not right? Uh, advertising a lot of products to kids, basically Jake Paul. Um, <laughs> like commoditizing that stuff. And, and yeah, this is the book kind of, ends with a lot of questions for the future that haven't been answered because of the relative youth of this whole world and one of the ones that i have one of the big picture questions that i worry about in the next sort of 10 15 years is what happens to a six-year-old kid now who watches a video from their favorite youtuber who buys all their merch, who grows up to be 15 or 16 and suddenly has the light bulb moment where they go, hang on, that person that was pretending to be my friend on screen was actually just trying to sell me their $20 t-shirt. And what happens to all of that person's social relationships in real life? Do they then start questioning the friendship that they've had with their best friend since they were five, worrying that they also are trying to sell them stuff. I guess that's, you know, because we've commoditized that personal relationship. And that's the one thing that I wonder what will happen when people start to get older and a little bit more self-aware of what they've actually been subject to. I'm with you. Um, yeah, the, the commoditization of a personal social relationship, that's, that's certainly a key takeaway. Let's, let's chat other social platforms outside of YouTube. I know TikTok is an area of huge interest right now. It seems to have been, to your point earlier, accelerated during lockdown. Before we get into the weeds on TikTok, is there a commonality, do you think, of social platforms that haven't worked? So, so Vine seems to have, Vine's obviously long gone. There was another kind of new Vine, I've forgotten the name right now, not that long ago, you know? Is there, why do you think some social platforms don't take off? Well, I mean, in the case of Vine, it's largely because Twitter just pulled the plug. I mean, Vine was doing enormously well, but I think maybe it was, you know, five or six years too soon. Um, Byte, which was by the yes. same guy, Don Hoffman, um, that ironically suffered not from being too soon, but from being too late because he'd been trailing it for years and years. You know, he said Vine was coming back, Vine 2.0 is coming back. And then suddenly in the years that he was developing it, uh, ByteDance 
produced their own version TikTok and they bought out musically uh, and merged it with those to get the audience in the Western world, you know, hundred million people back then. And suddenly TikTok was the second coming of Barton. And you talk, you know, you talk to people who don't follow these things precisely and they actually think that, you know, TikTok has a direct line back to Vine. They think the lineage is, you know, the same company, the same owners, the same developers. And, you know, it's, so I think, you know, that sort of, those two things failed, A, because they were cut off before they were allowed to really develop and because they were too late back to the market. But you look at like, you know, Facebook failing at video, um, you know, that's just because it doesn't really work. It's, you know, the, there are big established platforms like YouTube is, you know, going to be king here for a long time in long form video in terms of user generated content. I don't really see anybody supplanting it. You were again on Twitter, you were looking at, I think it was the habits of a, I think it was a nine year old child in terms of screen time and your observation were, and admittedly this is one person, but I was shocked by this too, that, their TikTok hours were 10 times their hours of YouTube. I mean, what, what is the potential in your view for TikTok? How big, how massive can it be? Huge, absolutely huge. I mean, it's taken, you know, maybe three or four years to get to the point that YouTube took like 10. Um, you know, it, it's on the same trajectory in terms of users, but it's just doing it at a much steeper rate. So... I think that it's potentially enormous because obviously it has this core audience who are um, you know, relatively young um, and it is kind of building out from that purposefully. So, you know, back in March 2019, 27% of its users were aged 13 to 17 and another 42% were aged 18 to 24. Only maybe what 15 percent were over the age of 35 but I, I spoke to rich waterworth who is the um uk managing director of tiktok and and looks like as tiktok kind of builds its european base at least in london and maybe it's non-china base in london looks like he might be increasingly important in the app's future and they're really focusing on building out that audience through you know, there's a big TV ad campaign at Christmas with um, Lewis Capaldi and uh, David Beckham. They obviously have the ad campaign that they've just launched this week, um, which has like Gordon Ramsay and people. You know, Gordon Ramsay is not of interest to a, a nine-year-old kid or to a 12-year-old kid. Gordon Ramsay is of interest to the 45-year-old parents of that kid who are starting to get the TikTok itch. And if they manage to kind of capture that audience, then you know, they become huge. Just let's go with a geeky question just to conclude this section of our chat, Chris. Are there any regional things that you've noticed when you look around the globe of how different different societies and different cultures and different countries interact with social media, whether that be on TikTok or across social media more broadly? Yeah, I mean, there's loads. So there's, there's several things. Um, on YouTube, you, you generally have the same types of creators. So you know, there is always a... Um, a unboxing kid creator who is kind of dominating the market. So in the US, it's Ryan Kadji's Ryan Toys Review 
uh, also known as Rhymes World. In the UK, you have Like Nastia, who also has a base in Russia because she has a Russian-speaking channel. And you can literally go around the, the world. I do, in, in one of the chapters, I kind of paint all of these different pictures of these people who are the same content. You know, they're producing content where they open up toys in different parts of the world ckn toys in australia which is a couple of kids um and and they do the same stuff but it's just slightly tailored whether it's in language or localized in terms of the toys or the things that they're talking about um and and you know so that is relatively similar but then you look at um the rise of tiktok in india which is huge you know there their biggest market, I think, outside of China, and certainly their fastest growing in the world. That is happening because uh, you know, mobile India, uh, mobile internet in India is hugely important. So Geo, which is a, a telecoms company, rolled out kind of super fast mobile internet across the entire country about a year and a half ago, which has really enabled the boom of TikTok there because short video content is suddenly accessible to people on the move um, in a way that YouTube kind of encourages you to dwell a bit more. So that's why it's becoming more popular there. It's maybe why it's growing slower in uh, the UK and the US because we tend to sit down in front of our TVs and watch long YouTube videos, you know, half hour Bon Appetit videos or something like that. But it is growing, you know, it, it's just going at different paces, I think, all around the world. So I'm still here with Chris Stoke-Walker, um, freelance journalist, author of an awesome book, book on YouTube, in case you can't tell, I love it. So do do check it out. Final section of the interview is around Chris's rocket fuel. So some actionable insights, some things to take away for our audience of media, marketing, tech people, anybody that really has an effect on youth culture or youth marketing. Let's start with a big question, Chris. What do you know about young audiences? What do you know about the youth? I think that they are way more dedicated to people that they like and way more fickle um, in terms of people who cross them or people that they don't like than any other generation. But, you know, it's difficult because there's not a lot of data out there about this stuff. There's a few firms that do kind of polling and research of kids and it just seems to be that they absolutely love their favourites and if they don't like them, they really hate them, I think. We live in an age of brand purpose. Lots of marketeers talk about that. What do you think is important to young audiences? So I think it's the same things that are kind of important to teenagers and, and sort of you know, young adults, which is they really identify with their personal goals and their personal fears. So it's, you know, you look at the, the climate change strikes with Greta Thunberg, they really focus on environmental issues. They really, um, they hold their beliefs earnestly and they expect their companies that they buy from and they interact with to kind of reflect that, I think, in a really powerful way. So you can't just pay lip service to an issue or a cause that is of interest to those sorts of people. You have to actually deeply engage with it and show, more importantly, that you're deeply engaging with it. What do you think is going to change next about how young audiences behave, whether that be in digital, on online or, or elsewhere? And what do you think, what's the change you've noticed about youth audiences? 
I think they've become a lot more participatory. And you know, this is kind of an extension of a trend that has already been happening. And we're seeing it accelerated more by apps like TikTok, where you actually are kind of able to become a creator far easier than you would on any other platform. You know, the barrier to entry is much lower. You're encouraged to engage, to wade into this place and to actually create your own content. So there's theoretically opportunities there for marketers to kind of co-opt those creators to make a little army of ordinary people um, that could maybe help them out in terms of their brand positioning. You've mentioned brands. Which brands do you do you think get it right in the digital space, and which brands do you think get it wrong? You don't have to name names, but uh, if there's if there's a type, if there's a a kind a thing that brands do that works, and a thing that brands do that doesn't work, I think um, I think in terms of uh, you know a brand that does well that we've kind of already mentioned is um, is Ryan's Toys Review. Um, you know, they have kind of figured out the secret to success and they've managed not only to present it in a very honest, earnest way, but they've also managed to really sensibly diversify. You know, they, they spread themselves quite widely, um, I guess almost liberally. They have a lot of different products out there which are really opportunities for people to come in in terms of you know which brands get it wrong or, or the types of brands that get it wrong i think it's just those that think that they know what is happening but they don't actually engage with the platform with the audience or with the marketplace they they kind of borrow stuff from tv or from traditional advertising and think that it'll work online i hear you on that yeah the amount of marketing managers that suggest a campaign for tiktok when they've never been on it or you know any social platform for that matter i'm i'm right with you there um finally chris last bit is there one takeaway from either our conversation that we've had today or anything else that you want our audience to walk away with um I had to fight a long time to get people to pay attention to YouTube in a meaningful way, not just in terms of like editors that I pitch stuff to, but also uh, the audience um, that would read the kind of output that I did. Uh, I think that we shouldn't be as dismissive of upcoming apps like TikTok or Triller or House Party or any of those and think that they're just going to be a flash in the pan because we made that mistake once already and now YouTube is seen by 2 billion people every single month. So pay more attention to these trends and actually acknowledge that digital culture is an important part of our lives. Chris, where can people find you on social media if indeed you want them to find you on social media? Yeah, they're more than welcome to. I'm at Stokel, which is S-T-O-K-E-L, um, on Twitter, Instagram, I don't really post anything. Uh, and you can follow me on TikTok if you really, really want. I will follow you on TikTok. I will, oh, that will be my immediate action. Chris Stokel Walker. I can't recommend the YouTuber's book more highly, by the way. It's an awesome read. It's, um, yeah, it's riotous in the way it's delivered and some of the stories in there are brilliant. Um, Chris, thanks so much for being this week's guest on Rocket Fuel. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you very much. 
was Chris Stokel Walker, the freelance journalist. Follow him on Twitter, um, where he links brilliantly to so many different articles. Also, his book, I can't recommend it highly enough. It did come out over a year ago, but it's still as important a piece of text as you could possibly imagine. It's called YouTubers, how YouTube shook up TV and created a new generation of stars. Um, check it out and uh, tune in for next week's Rocket Fuel. This is a Rocket Audio production.